Good morning, church. Our Bible reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 to 14. I will read. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Portia, thank you very much indeed. I don't know if you've been following the news uh, during the week in, in terms of the Conference of Bishops happening in Canterbury, uh, the Lambeth Conference, which happens every few years. Bishops from around the world gather to debate various matters. And it's been a great source of encouragement and joy to me to see two former uh, members of this church, now bishops, attending that conference, Bishop John Jowell from South Sudan and Bishop Godfrey from Tanzania. And it does seem from the press that they are trying to remind the bishops from the north what the Bible is really all about. And that, of course, is our business, isn't it, on Sunday mornings. Do please have your Bible open, and uh, I will ask the Lord to meet with us. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the enormous privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. We pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts might be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love. Our minds might be filled with your truth and our lives might be equipped to serve and glorify your name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, Tom uh, became a Christian about a year ago um, after attending a Christianity Explored course. And uh, for a few weeks afterwards, he felt marvelous. Um, he had a new sense of uh, joy and peace and purpose that he had never experienced before. But now, a few months later, the excitement of those early days is starting to die down. He's discovering that the Christian life is actually a battle. He keeps on falling for the same old sins, and he doesn't actually feel close to God anymore. And for the first time, questions have started to arise in his mind. Is Christianity really true? Or was I just carried along by a wave of emotion? 
He doesn't like to tell his friends about his nagging doubts because he thinks they would probably disapprove. They seem to be so certain about everything. Unlike uh, Tom, Jane has been a Christian for decades. She's one of the stalwarts of the church. Everybody knows her. And over the years, she's served in all manner of different ways, uh, leading Bible studies, serving in Kingdom Kids, doing street evangelism, that sort of thing. And as far as everyone else in the church is concerned, she is a really strong Christian. But she doesn't feel like it. Uh, life has been hard for a while now. Her marriage is not what it used to be. Uh, the children are going through an awkward phase. Her parents are getting older and a lot more demanding. And she feels like she's giving out all the time and she's not really getting very much back in return. Everything is such an effort. And although she's conscious of her desperate need for God's strength just to, to get through the day, it feels that God is miles away. And over the last few months, she's begun to ask questions that never really troubled her before. Does God care? Does he really love me? In fact, how can I actually be sure that I truly am saved. Now, Tom and Jane are fictional characters. They're, they're not based on any individuals either in this church or indeed any other church. I need to say that because every Christian goes through seasons when they find themselves asking exactly the same kind of questions. Lack of assurance is a normal part of Christian experience. But friends, just because it's normal doesn't mean we can ignore it. Questions like these are actually the early warning signs of a far more serious spiritual disease. So if we're wise, we'll want to take the right medicine before complications set in. Now, our passage this morning is precisely the right medicine for every Christian wrestling with uncertainties as to where they really stand with the Lord. Last week, we saw that Ephesians is a message from God for Christians under pressure. His purpose is to tell us everything that we need to know in order to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the pastoral purpose of the letter. And the first lesson we learned in last week's study is that all of history is moving towards the moment when God is going to bring all things together, everything, under the rule of Jesus. But that's not all. If we're Christians, if we are united to Christ by faith, then God has included us in his plan. In fact, he chose us to be part of it from before the foundation of the world. That was where we got to last week. But it still leaves room for doubt. I mean, it all sounds absolutely marvellous, doesn't it, in church on Sunday morning? 
But by Monday lunchtime, the pressures of life have usually kicked in. How can I be certain then that I really am part of God's family and that I will be part of those amazing events in the far distant future? On the days when I feel like Tom or Jane, what do I need to know in order to stay strong in the Lord? Well, that's the question that Paul is addressing in our passage this morning. In these four verses, Paul shows us how a person can know for certain that everything that he is saying is true for them personally. This is actually something that all of us can be sure of before we leave church this morning as we notice three things that God gives to every Christian. And the first is a rock-solid foundation. A rock-solid foundation, verse 13. See, Paul begins by going back to basics and reminding us how a person gets saved in the first place. He tells us that in order to be saved, a person must first hear something and then they must believe in someone. So verse 13 says that what they must hear is the word of truth. Now, please, will you notice that phrase? It's very important. Paul says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. Now, friends, immediately that sets the agenda for Sunday morning. Because if when your friends and loved ones come to church, all they hear is stories and entertainment and loud music, they won't get saved. Why not? Why does God attach so much importance to people hearing his word? Well, according to verse 13, it's because it is the word of truth. That means it is a rock-solid foundation for faith. And that makes all the difference. Because throughout the New Testament, truth always combines the same two ideas. What are they? Well, first, it is truth as opposed to what is not truth. Now, I'm sure you remember that when uh, Paul first arrived in Ephesus, the city was full of false teaching, rather like Cape Town today. It was everywhere. In fact, there was so much of it that Paul had to hire a lecture hall and give instruction every day for two years before people began to see that what they'd been listening to for years was all lies. But when eventually they did understand the truth, what happened? This is a very, very striking event in the history of the early church. Please turn, will you, to Acts chapter 19. The book of Acts chapter 19. And don't worry about the crackles, they'll sort it all out. Acts chapter 19, you concentrate on this. Verse 18, are we all there? Acts 19, verse 18. 
This is what happened with those people who first heard the word of truth from Paul. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now stay with me here. Will you notice that when, that, uh, when they heard and believed the word of truth, the very first thing they did was to get rid of all the other rubbish they had been reading. And what a lot of it there was. Someone has worked out that 50,000 drachmas is the equivalent of 30 million rand today. Now I think that just shows us, doesn't it, that when people are cut off from the word of truth, they will believe anything and everything. But then what happened? Verse 20. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now that is very striking. Because I think we would expect Paul to say that the church spread widely and grew in power. But he doesn't. And that's because, you see, the first sign that God is at work is not actually a big building that's full every Sunday. That might mean something. It might mean nothing at all. The first sign that God is really at work is a growing hunger for the word of truth. People hear something that they haven't heard before and now they can't get enough of it. That's actually why we named this church St. Barnabas Bible Church. Because we want people to know when they come here that hearing the word of truth is our top priority. We'll come back to Ephesians. And notice, please, that the word of truth in the New Testament is not simply truth as opposed to lies. Because secondly, it is also truth in the sense of reality. In other words, it connects ordinary men and women with what is ultimately real, with what life is really all about. I'm sure you remember that at certain key moments in his ministry, the Lord Jesus would say, I tell you the truth. And what he meant was, you simply cannot afford to ignore this. In fact, your entire life depends on it. What I'm about to tell you is hard news. And it requires your urgent attention. Now that, you see, is why the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, back in Ephesians 1, that the word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. And the word your in that sentence is emphatic. The point is that the word of truth is, is all about Christ, but it only becomes part of but it only becomes the gospel of your salvation when you believe in him. Now friends, we just need to pause on that for a moment 
and uh, make sure we all understand what is involved in believing in Christ. Because I think that many people today come very unstuck on that point. Because you see what happens is they investigate the basics of the Christian faith. They understand that in order to become a Christian they must believe in Christ, which is of course quite correct. But when they hear that word believe, they think that it means no more than accepting something is true. That it is factually correct. After all, that is what the word believes. Uh, the word believe means, doesn't it, in ordinary, everyday speech. So, for example, if a gift were to come to me after the service and say, how is your baby granddaughter Isabella doing? Uh, I might reply, well, I believe she's keeping her parents awake at night. Uh, meaning, that's what her parents told me on Friday, and I accept that that is the truth that it is factually correct. Now listen to me very carefully. In the New Testament, the word believe means a great deal more than that. It does not simply mean that you accept Jesus is who he claims to be. No, it means to give yourself up to Jesus. Now that is the proper meaning of the word believe in the New Testament. Now you don't hear this in many churches today, but that is what the word believe actually means. So, it's rather like the criminal who's on the run from the police. Uh, the police have been tracking him down for months, and eventually the criminal realizes, you know, I just simply can't go on like this, it's exhausting. So he comes out of hiding and he gives himself up. Now, friends, believing in Jesus is exactly like that. I hear the word of truth, and I realize it's absolutely useless to go on running away from him. So I turn myself over to him. I surrender my freedom to him. I give myself up to him, if you like. I ask him to put me in handcuffs. When I do that... To my amazement, I find something wonderful, exhilarating, something I actually wasn't expecting. Because I find that not only has God given me a rock-solid foundation for faith, but I also find he's given me a cast-iron guarantee. That's our second heading. John Mackay was a much-loved and respected Christian teacher of a generation or so ago. He became a Christian at the age of 14 when he was reading Ephesians. Listen to the way he described the experience. Quote, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I'd been quickened. I really was alive. Now, I hope that some of you can see echoes of your own conversion in that description. 
And verses 13 and 14 explain why Christian conversion can be such a vibrant, emotional, life-changing experience. In the middle of verse 13, have a look at it. Can you see it in your Bible? Middle of verse 13. Paul says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now I want you to see that Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer by using two images. In verse 13, the Holy Spirit is described as a seal. And in verse 14, he is described as a deposit. What are we meant to learn from those two images? Well, in those days, a seal served two purposes. First of all, it was a sign of authenticity. Because when you uh, sent an important letter and you wanted the recipient to be absolutely certain that it really was from you, you put your seal on it. And as soon as he saw it, he knew that the letter was genuine and wasn't a fake. Now that is the first thing the Holy Spirit does for us. Unfortunately, the, uh, the NIV here doesn't really help us see the thrust of Paul's point. Because that phrase, having believed, it sort of kind of implies that believing and receiving the Spirit happens Subsequently, So we, we, we believe first and the Spirit comes only afterwards. My friends, that is not the meaning of the text. Because a better translation would be, in believing, you were marked with the Spirit. Meaning that believing in Christ and being marked with the Spirit are two sides of the same coin. That they're two aspects of the same event. And if you and I are going to actually be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, we've got to get this clear in our minds. So keep a finger in Ephesians, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. pick it up at verse 11. I'll just wait for everyone to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul here is talking about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer versus the unbeliever. Verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We, that is Christians, have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Now pay close attention to verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you see what he's saying? What we're being told here is that you cannot believe the gospel. You cannot give yourself up to Christ unless the Holy Spirit enables you to do it. So Paul is putting it negatively here in 1 Corinthians. But in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is expressing the same idea positively. He's seeking to reassure the Christian. And he's saying that if you have believed in Christ, then that fact by itself is proof that God has already put his seal on you. It is a sign that you really are in Christ. We'll come back to Ephesians. Because the, the second uh, thing about a seal was that it was a sign of ownership. Uh, in this uh, second sense, a seal is a way of referring to what farmers did when they marked their cattle. So when the farmer went to market and he bought his cow, he brought it back home, and the first thing he did when he got it back to the farm was to take out his branding iron and mark the animal with his initials or with the family crest or whatever it was. Why did he do that? Because if at some point in the future the animal strayed into a neighbor's field, well, there would be absolutely no argument about who the cow belonged to. Now, all of us Christians need to know this. Because there are times, aren't there, in our relationship with the Lord, when the Lord seems to be especially close. But every Christian also knows there are other times when it seems as if we have strayed far away from God. Might be through our own sin, or it might just be the pressure of circumstances. God seems miles and miles away. And those are the times when you and I need to remember that when God marked us with his Holy Spirit, it was a sign that we belong to him. And like the farmer's brand on his cattle, the seal of the Spirit is permanent. can't be removed. You can't take this, the, the branding mark off a cow. You can't take the mark of the Spirit away from a Christian. And it's a mark of God's ongoing protection and care for all those who belong to him. Now notice in verse 14, that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives isn't just as a seal. You see, Paul says he's also a deposit. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I'm sure all of you know that a deposit is basically just a first instalment, isn't it? So uh, when you sell your house or your car or your laptop or whatever it is, the buyer pays you a deposit, and you're very pleased to have it because it's quite a lot of money. But at the same time, you also know that there's much, much, much more still to come. Now, that is the idea here. The Holy Spirit gives us a taste now on this earth of something infinitely more wonderful 
in the future. So just think with me for a moment about what the Holy Spirit does for us today. Uh, If you are in Christ, here are eight things that the Holy Spirit has already done and, uh, and continues to do for you throughout your life on earth. You won't have time to write them down. I'm going to run through them very quickly. Number one, he opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. Number two, he gives us access to God so that we can call him Father. Number three, he opens our mind to receive God's word. Number four, he helps us to live as Christian people. Number five, he gives us gifts to use in the church. Number six, he prays for us. Number seven, he gives us a sense of God's presence. Number eight, he enables us to resist temptation. All of that is just a deposit. It's only a foretaste of what lies ahead. In his uh, commentary on Ephesians, Pastor Kent Hughes puts it like this. He says, quote, Imagine the most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit that you have ever had. And then realize that they are only a foretaste, the tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing you were forgiven. Remember the time when in worship you were overcome with awe. Remember the time that you followed the Spirit's leading and were wonderfully used by God. Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruit of the Spirit surprising you with goodness where once you used to respond wickedly. Think of all of that and multiply it a millionfold. Here on earth, we have experienced the first dollar of a million celestial dollars, the deposit. It's rather good, that, isn't it? So in these verses... God reminds us that he's given every Christian a rock-solid foundation. He's given us a cast-iron guarantee. But there's one other thing that he's done to give us assurance, certainty, of our part in his plan. He's given us a divine purpose. Now, if you were awake as Portia was reading you might uh, have noticed that in talking about Christians as a group, Paul used three different pronouns. Now, if English grammar wasn't your thing at school, don't panic. But at the same time, please stay tuned, because the theme that Paul is introducing here is actually the most important indicator of our assurance as Christian people. So follow carefully with me. Can you see that in verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about we. Can you see that? He's referring there to Jewish Christians like himself because they were the first to hope in Christ. Then in verse 13, he addresses you. 
referring there to Gentile Christians who are actually the majority in the Ephesian church. And then he concludes what he has to say in verse 14 by speaking about our inheritance. Now here's the point. In the ancient world, Jew and Gentile never, never mixed. It was the widest racial, social, ethnic, cultural gap you could possibly imagine. It was kind of racism on steroids, far worse than anything we've seen in our generation anywhere in the world. There was a massive gap between Jew and Gentile. But in spite of the gap, Paul says these totally different people have been brought together by the gospel and been given exactly the same inheritance. Do you see that? It is ours. Verse 14. There's no difference. Now, my friends, here's the point. This is what Christian fellowship is actually all about. Christian fellowship is not, I repeat, not about a group of people who all come from the same background, all with the same lifestyle, all with the same education, all with the same interests, meeting on Sunday morning for a religious activity. That is not Christian fellowship in the New Testament sense. It isn't. Christian fellowship happens when people who've got nothing in common, who in the ordinary course of things might spend almost no time together, are brought together by hearing and believing the same word of truth and who are all given the same guarantee by God the Holy Spirit. And having brought this extremely unlikely group of people together, what is the purpose? Well, it's right at the end of the passage in verse 14. It is to live for the praise of God's glory. Now, my dear friend, if you are a Christian here this morning, that is the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to live for the praise of God's glory. And it's so important that Paul says it three times in the first 14 verses. Once in verse 6, again in verse 12, and again in verse 14. Now, I know for some of us that might be a bit of a shock, because today so much Christian culture encourages us to think that the gospel is all about me. But it isn't. It's not. It's for the praise of God's glory. It means that you and I have been given the astonishing privilege of exalting God, showcasing his love and his, his sovereign power and grace in all of the darkness and the brokenness of our fallen world. Now, you're going to be thinking... Sounds great, Simon. How do we do it? I'll tell you. We do it as the Holy Spirit works in us, overruling and overcoming all of those things that divide us 
and keep us apart instead of drawing us together. He literally overrules the differences in our age, our race, our culture, our gender, our education, our wealth, and he makes us one people in Christ. And you see, when you find a church that looks like that, God is being exalted. God looks really good. And when you notice that you are part of it, that the Holy Spirit is actually drawing you towards your brothers and sisters, instead of actually keeping you apart, my friend, that is a sure sign, it's a guarantee, that you are part of God's eternal purpose. And that is something that you can praise God for. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a rock-solid foundation for faith in the word of truth. We would be in darkness and confusion without it. Thank you also for the assurance of our salvation that you've given us through the Holy Spirit. And thank you for the work of your Spirit overruling all those things that might divide us and instead drawing us towards one another in unity as members of your family. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.